You're listening to Calvin's Institutes, Lesson 21. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Well, we have four classes to go, and uh, we'll look again today at Calvin's Doctrine of the Church, and then on Thursday, sacraments and baptism. Uh, next week, uh, Tuesday, Lord's Supper, and then next week, Thursday, civil government. That will take us through uh, Book 4 and complete our study of the Institutes. Uh, today, I'm going to uh, make out the exam that uh, a few of you will be interested in, uh, those who are doing uh, the exam rather than the paper. And uh, I would suggest you just kind of use your syllabus as a guide. Go through those uh, the outlines again. And um, pay some attention, of course, to arrangement as well as content. Not only what Calvin says about something, say, uh, his um, teaching on repentance or his practical description of the Christian life with the various subpoints under that. But where doctrines like that appear in the Institutes, we put a good bit of emphasis on Calvin's arrangement as well as his content. So mainly large discussion-type questions. Might be a few short answer types, but... Um, mostly give you a chance to write on some topic or some uh, issue uh, that Calvin deals with uh, in the Institutes. Well, we were looking at uh, nature of the church, and uh, there are two big headings there, visible and invisible church. I think I've said all I need to say about Calvin's distinction there between visible and invisible. And so we come today to true and false church. Very important topic for Calvin and for just about everybody in the 16th century as the church begins to divide Catholic, Protestant, Lutheran, Reformed, and so on, then the issue becomes very urgent, and that is, what is the true church? And we'll move on later uh, this morning to talk about the ministry, the officers of the church, ministers of the church, and pastors, and so on. And uh, the prayer from Calvin this morning is a prayer particularly for pastors. And uh, I'll pray this. We pray for faithful pastors in the words of John Calvin. Let us pray. O faithful Father and Savior, we commend to Thee in our prayers all whom Thou hast appointed pastors over Thy faithful, and to whose guidance Thou hast committed our souls, all whom Thou hast been pleased to make the dispensers of Thy holy gospel, that Thou wouldst guide them by Thy Holy Spirit, and so make them honest and faithful ministers of Thy glory. 
making it all their study and directing all their endeavors to gather together all the desolate sheep which are still wandering astray and bring them back to Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd and prince of bishops, and that they may increase in righteousness and holiness every day. Amen. As we come to uh, True and False Church, we need to, first of all, discuss Calvin's um, ideas about the marks of the church. How can you tell a true church? Calvin says true church will have two marks, and um, these are criteria of a true church. The face of the church comes forth and becomes visible to our eyes. So as we see these marks present in the face of the church, comes forth and becomes visible to our eyes, Calvin says. Now, the first mark is the Word of God purely preached and heard. It's absolutely necessary uh, for that to be true, for a church to be there. The Word of God must be preached. And Calvin qualifies that by saying purely preach, which means the real Word of God, correct teaching of the Word of God. And he also adds the word heard. So it's not just the bare sermon, but it's proper, true sermon, setting forth the true meaning of the Scripture and people listening to that. The heard, I think the purpose of adding the word heard there, preaching of the word, pure preaching of the word, and hearing of the word, is probably Calvin's concern that preaching be in the vernacular. If sermons are in Latin and people don't know Latin, then they can't hear. It doesn't do them any good, so sermons must be preached in the vernacular, as Calvin did in Geneva. He preached in French, not in Latin. He wrote in Latin and French, but he preached in French so that people could not only hear him speak, but understand what he was saying. As we look at Calvin's life in Geneva and the church in Geneva, we certainly see the importance of preaching. Preaching had fallen on bad times prior to the Reformation. There were not many sermons, and uh, those sermons did not um, treat consecutively books of the Bible, as Calvin liked to do in his preaching, so that people would be taught the Bible, whole books of the Bible, and in time the whole Bible. But uh, sermons in connection with the Catholic Mass were often just um, short homilies related to some text in the liturgy for that day, but uh, in Geneva, uh, it was quite uh, different. Uh, There were three parish churches, St. Peter's, where Calvin preached, and two others in and around the city of Geneva, and um, at um, its height, uh, there were 17 sermons a week in those three churches. So people heard a lot of sermons. In fact, it's said that practically every morning, Calvin was in the pulpit telling people that they were sinners for whom Christ died. 
so they hear the gospel every day and sometimes several times uh, during the day. We have about uh, 1,500 of Calvin's uh, sermons that have been preserved. Uh, Perhaps as many as 1,000 of those sermons have been lost. Unfortunately, beginning of the 19th century or perhaps even later, uh, those sermons uh, were being lost from the library in Geneva. In fact, at one time, apparently, a librarian, not really realizing what he was doing, was using Calvin's sermons as wrapping paper to send out books uh, to people, thinking it was just scrap paper. And um, a lot of Calvin's sermons were lost through that uh, carelessness. But uh, we have a good many of Calvin's sermons. Actually, not all that many in English. We do have some. We have uh, Calvin's sermons on the book of Ephesians in English, translated into English, Uh, some of his sermons on Job, and some other passages too, some other books too, but uh, by uh, no means do we have uh, the complete corpus of Calvin's preaching uh, available to us yet in English. I expect more and more of that will will come as, as time goes on. Yes, do With Calvin preaching as much as he did, do we have a sense of what his sermon preparation looked like? The question is, how did Calvin prepare? You know, he's, he's preaching and he's teaching consistently. He's a preacher and a teacher. And uh, his, his teaching, uh, we know what that looks like because of his commentaries. And when you say, look at Calvin's commentary, for instance, on Ephesians, and then compare his sermons on Ephesians, there's some difference, but there's not a huge difference. His, um, his preaching tends to be much like his teaching, but perhaps a little more personal, a little more application. But I don't know that we know exactly how Calvin prepared. He was studying all the time, studying Scripture, and apparently had a marvelous mind because Calvin could teach and preach without notes. And it sounds like he's reading manuscript when you read what he is producing. Uh, Students uh, and friends uh, took down his sermons by a kind of uh, invented shorthand that they came up with, and a team of them would take down his sermons and then compare what they had produced, and sometimes showed it to Calvin, sometimes did not. So uh, we have his sermons. We have sermons on Deuteronomy. Uh, that was uh, Those sermons were taken down by shorthand by these um, students. But uh, Calvin was was a student, certainly, and um, he was a man of uh, remarkable mind and, and memory. So, don't let uh, that discourage you. Do the best you can and um, develop your own style and system, but uh, we can admire uh, Calvin for the way uh, he was able to preach so consistently for so long and produce such quality sermons. So, the Word of God purely preached and heard, and then second mark of the church, sacraments administered 
according to Christ's institution. And we'll come to our study of the sacraments in the next two classes. Calvin reduces those from seven to two. Roman Catholic Church had, by 16th century, settled on the idea that there were seven sacraments. In fact, that had been settled for several centuries by then. But uh, Calvin uh, does not agree with that and says there are two biblical sacraments. One is um, baptism and one is the Lord's Supper. And these should be administered according to Christ's institution. You might um, put it this way. The question, as I said as I began, where is the true church? could be answered this way in the 16th century. The, the Catholic Church would say it's wherever the, the bishop is. The church is where the, the bishop is, where the uh, priest is. That's the church. Anabaptist, some Anabaptists, in fact, uh, perhaps most of the Anabaptists would put it this way. The church is where godliness is, where holiness is, where Christian living is. But uh, Calvin's answer is that the church is where Christ is, and Christ is present in the preaching of the word and in the administration of the sacraments. So where the word is purely preached, heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, uh, there he is present in his blessing, and there is the church. Discipline is important for Calvin, church discipline, but it is not a third mark. The Reformed tradition, Scotland, Westminster Confession, will add church discipline to preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments as a third mark. Uh, Calvin doesn't do that. I'm going to speculate in a moment as to why he doesn't do that. But uh, let me first of all say that discipline is extremely important for Calvin. And by church discipline, when we think of that idea connection with the institutes, we don't mean entirely censures or correction. Church discipline can have a more positive uh, meaning, which I think it should, training, helping, instructing, as well as correcting. All that's extremely important uh, for Calvin. It's indispensable, in fact, if the church is to maintain its true character. If you had a church preaching the pure word of God and administering the sacraments correctly, but had no discipline whatsoever, Calvin said that church would soon disappear, would no longer be a church. So even though he doesn't have uh, discipline as the third mark, uh, it certainly is important to him. His favorite uh, image or illustration of discipline is to compare it to sinews, sinews of the body. 
412.1 is one place where he uses that uh, image. If the saving doctrine of Christ is like the soul of the church, soul and body of the church, we might say, that is, the preaching of the word, administration of the sacraments, and we'll see that those two support each other. We don't have sacraments without word, and word should lead to sacraments because both are saying the same thing. Both are preaching the gospel and supporting each other in the preaching of the gospel. That's the body and soul of the church. But then Calvin says that church discipline is like the sinews that that holds it together, just like we need sinews to keep our bodies together. So the church needs uh, discipline in order to hold together. Calvin says, all who desire to remove discipline or to hinder its restoration are surely contributing to the ultimate dissolution of the church, 412.1. So discipline has to be there for the church to be effective, for the church to continue, for the church um, to be ensured that uh, the efficacy of the word and the sacraments uh, will continue. But why not make it a third mark? Calvin doesn't say this in so many words, but um, I think perhaps the answer is this in Calvin's thinking. Later, Reformed theology uh, adds um, discipline. In fact, I was reading Donald MacLeod, the Scottish theologian, in a book called Faith to Live By. And Donald MacLeod says that you could add a fourth mark, which is compassion for the poor, charity. And uh, he sees this uh, in the development of uh, Knox and Melville in the church in Scotland. And then a fifth mark, which is worship, which he sees at least um, hinted at in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But Calvin, two marks. And I think the reason that uh, he does not include discipline as a third mark is that the preaching of the word and the giving of the sacraments are sheer objective elements in which the grace of God is given to us. That's what makes the church the church. God's grace is offered to us, is poured out upon us in sheer objective manner. And discipline is a kind of subjective response to that grace. In other words, we learn, we hear, we obey, we're corrected. Very essential for the church. And without uh, discipline, the church would not long exist. But uh, there's a kind of difference there between the sheer objectivity of the two marks and our human response, uh, which is uh, urgently important, uh, but not the same as grace.
questions about that or thoughts on that? When was it that church discipline became a third mark? Already in the 16th century, because by the time we come uh, to John Knox, uh, he has made church discipline a third mark, and it certainly is present in the 17th century in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But it's kind of a fine line there. In Calvin, you want to say there are two marks, but discipline is so important, very close to being a third mark, but he doesn't quite elevate it to the same level where he wants to place the preaching of the word in the ministration of the sacraments, which, as we'll see later, are really two parts of the same thing, and that is the offering of the good news, the gospel of God's grace uh, to us. Okay, as we look at uh, discipline, aims and steps, we can go through this pretty quickly because this is well known, but uh, let me just um, mention these things. Calvin has three aims in discipline. And uh, here he's thinking more of the corrective aspect of discipline. The first um, is that it preserves the honor of God. Church is God's Christ's body, and his honor is at stake. And discipline must be exercised in order to preserve his honor. Secondly, it protects the good from the wicked. Uh, we're easily led astray by bad conduct and bad examples. And if the church is not dealing with wicked actions, then that's going to contaminate others in the church. And thirdly, it leads, hopefully, the offender to repentance. Calvin's uh, purpose in discipline is not just to punish. It's not really to punish at all. It's to correct. It's to uh, cause the person to see the error of his or her way and repent and be restored uh, to the full fellowship of the church. But uh, in this list, typically Calvin begins with uh, the honor and glory of God and ends up with the welfare and good of people. So you can see discipline serving both functions to glorify God and to help uh, those in the church, both by protecting some from the sins of others and also by uh, bringing those who are guilty of specific sins uh, to repentance. The steps, first, private warning, and Calvin is simply following uh, New Testament instruction here. Private warning, public admonition, that would be either before the entire church or with a group of elders meeting with the individual. And thirdly, exclusion from communication, that is from Holy Communion. Most of the acts of church discipline in Geneva, and uh, plenty of this went on um, 
between the year 1557 and 1560, there were an average of uh, at least 200 excommunications a year in the churches, in the three churches in Geneva. I mean, we very seldom hear of an excommunication today. Occasionally, in one of our churches, someone is excommunicated. But um, 200 excommunications a year shows the seriousness with which the leaders of the Geneva church considered church discipline. The extent of excommunication, though, was generally uh, to be suspended from one communion. And there were four quarterly communions in Geneva. So a person was excommunicated, which meant that that person could not partake of the communion for one time, sometimes two times, occasionally as many as four times, but uh, generally one time. It did not mean the person could not come to church. In fact, the person was required to come to church, as everybody else in Geneva was. So if you were excommunicated for something, it meant that on that one communion Sunday, uh, you were not allowed to partake uh, of the Lord's Supper. That became quite an issue in Geneva because Calvin felt the church itself should have the ultimate responsibility of saying who could take the Lord's Supper and who could not. But um, the civil leaders in Geneva felt that the, the state should have the last word in excommunication, as was true in many other parts of Protestant Europe. But Calvin insisted on the freedom of the church to decide this issue. And on one famous occasion, when there was a man, one of the leaders of the church, who had been excommunicated, leaders of the state, been excommunicated by the church, but he insisted he was going to receive the Lord's Supper anyway. And uh, Calvin wrote that um, if he did, that he, Calvin, would stand in front of the table and physically prevent this man from taking the Lord's Supper if it uh, was necessary. Uh, fortunately, the man did not show up. I'm not sure what would have happened if he had. Uh, Calvin was not that strong of a person, and uh, it could have been a, a disaster. But uh, you can see Calvin's um, concern there that it's not the state, but it's the church uh, that decides this issue. Yes? A uh, couple questions. I've always heard a distinction between excommunication and um, borrowing someone from the elements. Um, could you talk about that? Uh, and then the other question is um, idea of barring someone from the elements, though they're repentant. Because uh, evidently, if you're just barring someone from the elements for just one Sunday, mm -hmm. they'd have to be repentant. If they were unrepentant, it wouldn't be right just to let them back at the table the next Sunday. Yeah. Um, how is that appropriate? To okay, let me uh, deal with those one by one. Um, excommunication. Say the first one again. The excommunication is, is a step beyond simply barring someone from the elements. You might bar someone okay. from the but they're still uh, not. Right. Yes, um, excommunication means you're out of fellowship with the church so that uh, you 
cannot communicate, which means receive the Lord's Supper. And um, in Geneva, uh, that could be for one uh, observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, in hardened cases where there's no repentance, then that excommunication can become more permanent. And uh, the civil magistrates in Geneva then did become involved as to what punishment would be meted out uh, to uh, harden offenders. But um, generally, in Geneva, it was for a shorter time and there, there would have to be repentance. You know, there would be excommunication for one time, and then the consistory would continue to meet with the individual. If there was not repentance, there, that um, suspension from the sacraments um, of the Lord's Supper would be continued uh, for another time until there was repentance, or until there was it was clear, or at least seemed clear, uh, to the consistory that uh, there was a kind of final rejection and then uh, punishment from the state would ensue. That was um, something that took place in the 16th century that we would not agree with, of course, that the state would then have the right to decide the ultimate uh, penalty, which could be to be barred from the city and um, even more extreme cases. Yes, question? Um, I was asking if this was the reason, uh, excommunication, that uh, Calvin got kicked out of Geneva for three years? He, it, was, uh, it was Calvin's uh, insistence on, on church discipline. I think uh, the reason he was expelled um, and had to go to Strasbourg. There were a number of reasons there, but uh, the primary reason was uh, his insistence on um, church discipline. Um, Calvin said when he arrived in Geneva in 1536, there were sermons, but that was all. Farrell was there preaching sermons, but uh, there was no really organization of the church and no discipline. And uh, Calvin um, felt that, um, of course, that that was wrong. And uh, he moved to um, create a church system where there would be discipline. I think Calvin was right in doing that. He may have tried to move too fast and um, alienated people unnecessarily rather than bringing them along slowly and carefully. But uh, that was the basic reason why he was expelled. But uh, then three years later, the Genevans realized that um, they needed something like what Calvin had uh, suggested. It was really not until 1555 that the consistory, that would be like the, the presbytery, the consistory attained the right to have its sentence of excommunication recognized as final. There was a struggle between the councils and the consistory between state and church until 1555. And um, you might say Calvin finally um, won his long battle uh, at that uh, point. Okay, let's uh, move on now to the next uh, point here in the outline. As long as the church retains its marks, we must not reject it, even if it otherwise swarms with many faults. So Calvin says there are the 
two marks, and then discipline. It's close, but uh, for reasons that I already suggested, not a third mark. But as long as the word is being preached and people are hearing it, sacraments are being correctly administered, uh, that's a church. It's not a perfect church, but uh, it can be considered a true church, even if it swarms with many faults. And uh, when Calvin uh, begins to describe what the faults are, tells us, first of all, there may be some fault in doctrine or sacrament, 4.1.12. So, Calvin doesn't require a church to be perfect in its doctrinal teaching or perfect in its sacramental administration uh, to be a true church. Uh, the fault in doctrine, Calvin says, has to be in non-essential matters. You cannot have a a church that um, had gone astray into some major heresy and that church was preaching that heresy. It could not be considered a true church, but there may be, quote, some fault in non-essential matters. That's 4.1.12. And then Calvin begins to list what he thinks are necessary doctrines God is one. I have to believe in the oneness of God, that there is one God. Christ is God. Our, our salvation rests in God's mercy. And then you kind of hope he will go on and complete the list. And he says, and such like. So we don't have Calvin's uh, authoritative list of what are the essential doctrines. Certainly in the three that he lists, you get doctrine of the unity of God, the oneness of God, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace, we would say. But uh, he doesn't say that's all. He just says in such like. So uh, we are left uh, to wonder what else should belong in that list. But Calvin says church may make some mistakes in some areas of its teaching, but it has to be a non-essential area, whatever that means. We know part of what it means from Calvin's uh, words here, but we don't know completely what it means, at least from his point of view. And it could still be a, a true church. What do we do then? If we're in a church like that, we must try to correct what displeases us? 4.1.12. This is all 4.1.12. We don't abandon the church. We work as hard as we can to correct what displeases us. So, there may be some fault in doctrine or sacrament, and there certainly may be, and we would almost say will be, imperfections of life. That means um, people are not going to be living um, the way Christians ought to. So you can't just say about a church where there is preaching of the word, pure preaching of the word, proper administration of the sacraments, that I don't like this church because 
These people are too worldly. Julian? We understand or relate to that in relation to all of the Presbyterian denomination splits and also what the Methodist Church is going through right now. In terms of... Uh, <laughs> not leaving when it's not right. Yes. Well, I think the answer from... Right. You know, the answer from Calvin will be, and I'll talk about this in a few minutes, Calvin did leave a church. But now as he thinks about what is the, the true church, and he's thinking about the Protestant church, maybe even the Reformed church, but... Uh, probably more likely the Protestant church. Uh, we'll see later that Calvin signed the Augsburg Confession with its Lutheran statement of the Lord's Supper. So I think Calvin would not have said difference of opinion on the presence of Christ in the elements is not adequate for breaking fellowship with the church. So he does leave a church but I think he would say there, he does say there, that um, the necessary doctrines were not being taught. God's salvation through the mercy of Christ alone was not being taught. So that church was not, the Catholic church was not uh, a church in which there was some fault in doctrine, but, but major fault in doctrine. In fact, Calvin says we... We left them in order to come to Christ. We did not stay Catholics and be Christians. So that's, that's a major issue. But I think this would apply more to our being in a church, getting unhappy with that church, and then leaving it uh, because um, some teaching doesn't please us or some people aren't behaving the way they should. And Calvin would say, no, you can't do that. I mean, we leave churches for even less significant things, don't we? We don't like the, the paint, uh, the new color of the Sunday school building or something. And people uh, kind of wander about all the time. Uh, that's more of a modern phenomenon. But uh, I think it was a problem in Calvin's day too, although people did not have the, the flexibility that they have today to change churches or change denominations uh, at the drop of a hat. Uh, Calvin um, goes into this matter of imperfections of, of life. I'm not going to uh, go through all these references that I've given there, but uh, just one or two. Uh, Calvin uh, says, um, look at the church in, in Corinth. A lot of problems in Corinth, and you read Paul's correspondence uh, with that church, and you find um, that um, all kinds of pretty major problems existed there. Yet, Calvin said, the church abides among them. Now, Paul is still calling that a, a church. It's the church in Corinth, even though it's um, a church that um, has some, some major imperfections of life. And look at the church in Galatia, uh, some, some serious uh, falling away in, in doctrine there. But Paul says, Calvin says, Paul still recognized churches among them. He's thinking of the whole province where there would be a number of 
of churches, uh, not just the one congregation, but a number of churches uh, in Galatia. So, maybe some fault in doctrine, some imperfections of, of life. Calvin primarily here is opposing, I think, the, uh, the Anabaptist. He calls them airy spirits, almost angelic kind of people that float above the earth and don't really live on this ground where we live. Because the Anabaptists were seeking for a perfect church, a pure church, church without sin and without error. And uh, Calvin is sure uh, that they're never going to find it. He says in the creed, that is the Apostles' Creed, forgiveness of sins follows the church. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. So what Calvin makes of that is... um, church is full of sinners, and um, we exist as a communion of saints, but we also uh, exist as uh, people who are sinners that have to ask constantly for God's uh, forgiveness and for the forgiveness of each other. Okay, let's uh, come next to a comparison of the faults and the true church, because... um, Calvin becomes um, somewhat detailed here and sets forth uh, two levels of uh, false churches. Church can be a false church. True church is a church um, where the word is preached and the sacraments properly administered. But there are some churches where that's not not true. So we call that a false church. But when Calvin comes to thinking of what is a false church, uh, he wants to make a distinction here. And uh, first he talks about churches that lack lawful form. The marks are missing. Christ is absent. But for Calvin, and this would be a description of the Roman Catholic Church, which is a false church, but Calvin is not willing to go so far as to say that it cannot claim the name of church. It's a false church because it lacks the lawful form, but uh, there are certain degrees here. Because you can go from false church, lacking the lawful form, to no church at all. And as Calvin looks at the Roman Catholic Church, it's somewhere between lacking lawful form and no church at all. But he's not willing to say it's no church at all. Catholics, of course, would say that of the Protestants. It's no church at all can't use the name church. In fact, you know, the modern Catholic church, even in this ecumenical age in which we live, still refuses to 
call a Protestant church the church because there's only one church and that is the Catholic church. The word they, or the two words they use for us are ecclesial fellowships. We have ecclesial fellowships but uh, the Catholics alone have the church. But uh, as Calvin looked at the 16th century, he said the Catholic church lacks the lawful form but uh, he was not um, willing uh, to go as far as saying that it was a false church. The marks were missing. Christ was absent. And so Calvin separated from the Roman Catholic Church, or as he put it, they have expelled us. He did not see himself so much as leaving the church as he saw himself being expelled from the church. He says it behooved us to withdraw from them that we might come to Christ. So, pretty strong indictment there. Marks are missing. Gospel is not being preached. Sacraments are not... um, properly administered because the the mass, for reasons that we'll see next week, cannot be considered a true celebration of the Lord's Supper. So you have idolatry right in the heart of the church, the worship of the transubstantiated elements. And then Christ is absent. The presence of a pope symbolizes the real absence of the church's head, not the presence of the church's head. The Pope is the head of the church. The presence of the Pope takes the place of Christ. So, it's no wonder that uh, Calvin separated from the Roman Catholic Church. He says, apart from the Lord's word, there is not an agreement of believers, but a faction of wicked men. So, you don't have unity around the word. You don't have a church. You don't have an agreement of believers. You have a faction of wicked men. Calvin's um, treatment. of his understanding of requirements of the true church, that would be book four, first four chapters, followed by arguments that the Roman Catholic Church is not a true church, four, five through 11. We're not reading all of that, but uh, in four, five through 11, uh, Calvin argues in great detail that the papacy itself is directly contrary to church order. Gives biblical, historical, theological, and moral grounds. And someday you may want to go through all of that, but um, we're not doing it uh, for this class. But uh, Calvin does set forth in great detail uh, reasons why he considers the Roman Catholic Church no longer a true church. This section uh, demonstrates Calvin's uh, considerable 
uh, ability in church history. As we go through the institutes, we see Calvin using church history from time to time. But uh, in these chapters, which we're not reading, he really delves into church history in a great deal of detail and shows skill there for a 16th century scholar. Also shows his uh, considerable ability in invective because Calvin's polemic gets as, uh, as strong in these chapters as anywhere and uh, sometimes certainly overdoes it in uh, the words that he uses and the thoughts that he uses to denounce the um, Roman Catholic uh, Church. But as strong as Calvin is in all of that, he insists that traces, is the word he uses, traces for 211 of the church still remain in Catholicism. He denies that the Catholic church is a true church, but uh, he doesn't go so far as to say that uh, there are no traces left. In fact, he says in 4.2.12, they are still churches to the extent that the Lord wonderfully preserves in them a remnant of his people. And uh, Calvin argues that um, as long as they maintain baptism and other vestiges, uh, they can be viewed as churches. Baptism is still there, practiced in the Catholic Church in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not uh, clear uh, what the other vestiges are, but um, Calvin does see something still there in the Catholic Church, uh, although he, one place, describes it as a kind of uh, trash heap or dung heap with just a little flicker of uh, life or a flicker of a flame still alive in the midst of uh, all that's bad. Well, we come uh, next uh, to the doctrine of uh, the church in terms of its order, church order, or the ministry of the church. And here uh, Calvin says, Scripture reveals an order of permanent validity. We have in the Bible not only the doctrine of the church, but we have also the order of the ministry of the church. Calvin is different from Luther at this point. Luther uh, did not uh, spend much time uh, thinking about or writing about ecclesiastical organization, which to him uh, depended almost entirely on circumstances, and he was willing to allow the state, the princes, to uh, control and to determine the outward structure of the church as long as Ministers were free to proclaim the gospel in the church, but for Calvin, the order of church government, as he says in 4.4.1, has been handed down to us from God's pure word. There is an order, and it's not open to us to create just any order or polity, but uh, we must 
obey uh, the order that has been handed down from the Word of God. But having made uh, that point, uh, Calvin also says that Scripture gives us considerable freedom uh, within the prescribed order of the Word of God. As Dr. McNeil puts it in our institutes, in one of the footnotes, that uh, companies 41030, Calvin sets forth a sensible freedom in secondary matters. God did not will in outward discipline and ceremonies to prescribe in detail what we ought to do, Calvin says, because he foresaw that this depended upon the state of the times and he did not deem one form suitable for all ages. So he has not given, God has not given us a church polity in precise detail that uh, can't be changed because times change, situations change, circumstances change, and it is necessary and permissible uh, for us uh, to change what we do, how we see the church, and how the church is organized from time to time. Here is Calvin's commentary on 1 Corinthians 14.40. The Lord allows us freedom in regard to outward rites in order that we may not think his worship is confined to those things. Freedom in outward rites. We can change. We can vary it. We can do it differently because his worship is not confined to the precise way in which we do these things. Then Calvin goes on to say, however, he has restricted the freedom in such a way that it is only from his word that we can make up our minds about what is right. So freedom, yes, but restricted freedom, we can't just do anything. We have the word that enables us to decide what is right. Sometimes we call this the regulative principle. You're familiar with that phrase, that we can only do those things which the Bible commands in our worship. We can only do those things which the Bible commands. And I think we can use that expression for Calvin, but it seems to me that perhaps an even better way to think of it is a directive principle. Scripture directs more than it regulates. In other words, we have the scripture there which directs us as to how we should think about things. But then as Calvin says, God has restricted the freedom in such a way that it's only from his word that we can make up our minds about what is right. That's directive, not regulative. You see. Regulative principle idea is an important one, but it's a very difficult one to apply through church history, and Reformed people have struggled with it all the way down to the present. It may be good for us to think of it more in terms of directive, but um, that's a matter we could probably spend a lot of time on. Calvin says that um, 
we can use our freedom, but um, love should be our guide. He wants to avoid rash, sudden, and unnecessary change. 4.10.30 If we let love be our guide, all will be safe. It's a kind of a practical pastoral word. And a good word for you to remember as you go into a church and you want to change something. Maybe it needs to be changed. Uh, but let love be your guide. That means you don't do something suddenly, um, abruptly, and without uh, preparing the people for it. You see, this is... This is the older, more mature, more experienced Calvin talking now, not the young man that went to Geneva in his 20s and and did try to change things pretty quickly and got expelled. And uh, wiser and um, more cautious now. Properly so, I think. Calvin does talk about uh, the importance of decorum, dignity, and propriety. I won't uh, go through uh, all of that, uh, but this is another theme. We have freedom, but we should use that freedom bounded by love, and um, whatever we do should be marked by decorum, dignity, and propriety. It's almost become a Presbyterian rule, hasn't it? We do things uh, with dignity and decently and in order. And Calvin was concerned about all of this too. In 1 Corinthians 14.40, he says, commenting on the text, let all things be done decently and in order. He says, uh, Paul sums up everything he has set forth concerning the external organization of the church with this statement. Seemliness should be preserved and disorder should be avoided. This statement shows that he was not willing to put people's consciences under obligation to the instructions he gave above as if they were binding for their own sake but only insofar as they make for seemliness and peace. So some things we do in the church, we do for those reasons. Order, decorum, peace, propriety. Not because those are absolute rules that um, cannot in any circumstance or situation uh, be broken. And he ends up, with the importance of peace in the church. So, we have a church order. It's given to us in the scripture. It has permanent validity. It's directive in that it shows us what we ought to do. But uh, within the parameters of that church order, uh, we have uh, a great deal of uh, freedom to move, to change things. But uh, we should always be guided by love, by decency, and by a sense of the importance of peace in the church. We'll begin uh, talking about church offices and conclude this um, next time. 
the head of the church is Christ. 431, he alone should rule and reign in the church. So there's no pope. Christ reigns in the church. Christ alone should reign in the church. Remember, when the PCA was first being formed, we debated. We had our committees in different cities at first. So Mission to the World was in Atlanta, and Mission to North America was in Montgomery, and Christian education was somewhere else. We were fearful of kind of a church hierarchy. So we spread things out and then decided that uh, that was not a good idea because these agencies had to work together. It would be better to have them at least close together. So we started talking about um, locating uh, all the agencies in one place. And that debate went on a few years. Uh, Atlanta was always a a leading candidate. Uh, St. Louis um, seemed like for a while it could have been here that uh, those offices would have been located because the seminary was here. But uh, we talked about it a good bit, and uh, one General Assembly, I think the one in which we voted to move um, our offices to Atlanta, people were talking about our headquarters being Atlanta. And uh, Dr. Morton Smith had about enough of that, so. He stood up and reminded us that our headquarters are in heaven, he said, (laughs) not in Atlanta. (laughs) And uh, that's another way of saying what Calvin says here, that uh, we don't have an earthly head. We don't have earthly headquarters, but Christ is head of the church. But Christ works through the ministry of men just as a workman uses the tool to do his work, Calvin says, 4.3.1. Or as a sort of delegated work. So it's Christ who's working, but he's using people as a workman would use a tool. He's using us in a sort of delegated work. His commentary on Malachi 4.6 Calvin says, God connects himself with his servants, but he never resigns to them his own office. So we're connected. The ministry of the church is connected to God, but we don't take over his office as the chief pastor of the church remains unviolated. Why does God uh, do this? Calvin gives three reasons. That is, why he uses uh, human instruments. Why do we have pastors who are people like us? Why does God do it that way? First, uh, his regard for us. It's all 4.3.1. It shows the significance of human beings that God takes some to serve as his ambassadors in the world to be interpreters of his secret will and to represent his person. The fact that God will reach down and call some, those of you in this class, some others, many others, 
uh, to be his servants, uh, shows his regard for the significance of human beings that he would choose to use such as we uh, as his servants and ministers in this world. Secondly, it's an exercise in humility. It helps all of us to be humble. We receive God's word from a human being just like us. In fact, Calvin says he may excel us in nothing. Might not be as smart as we are or as well-placed in society as we are or a lot of other things we could say. But he's the preacher. He's the one that God has chosen to set forth his word. And that fosters humility. We listen expecting to hear and to learn God's word from a person that, humanly speaking, is below us in a lot of ways. And thirdly, it fosters mutual love. That second point, um, you have to kind of apply that in your own thinking, I mean, there are some outstanding preachers that we would say, well, we can never reach that level in intelligence or ability to speak or anything else. But um, you know, sometimes we hear people that are just rather simple, ordinary people. And um, we might think, be tempted to think, well, who is that, that uh, he can be preaching and I'm the one listening and learning. I think there are occasions for us to experience humility there. And it fosters mutual love. The human ministry is the chief sinew by which believers are held together in one body. Because God has deigned to um, work through human beings, not through angelic beings, then we're all alike in the church. We're all human beings. And uh, the pastor uh, to the youngest, smallest baby baptized in the church, there is that uh, community and it's the human ministry which is the chief sinew by which believers are held together in one body. We are dependent upon each other for the words, the very words that that promise eternal life. And we can hardly be more closely bound up uh, with one another uh, than we are uh, in the church. Now, those are Calvin's general comments about church offices. We'll have to look at uh, the specific offices next time, apostles, evangelists, prophets, which he says are temporary or extraordinary, and then pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons, which are permanent and ordinary. Also have a word about uh, bishops and a comment on the role of uh, women in the ministry of the church. Okay.
be all for today. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.